Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Nadia Hashimi. Nadia is an author of both adult and children's books. Her latest novel, A House Without Windows, available in paperback, follows Ziba, a wife and mother in Afghanistan. When Ziba is found next to her husband's dead body and unable to offer an explanation, she is accused of murdering her husband. She is sent to a women's prison, where she meets a whole host of women accused of various crimes as she awaits her fate. We spoke with Nadia about the novel and the lens it provides into modern-day Afghanistan. So on the phone with us right now, we have Nadia Hashimi, author of A House Without Windows. And Nadia, thanks for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be able to join you. Great. Fantastic. Um, And so the book takes place in Afghanistan. um, And your parents were born there, correct? Correct. They were born and raised there and then came over to the States in the early part of the 1970s or mid-1970s. And so have you been there since um, they came over? Because you you were born in the States, correct? I was born and raised in the States here. Um, I I have made a trip over there with my parents. You know, something that I grew up with is um, sort of like I call it a spiritual connection to the country without having the physical connection to the country. Um, Mm -hmm. Because growing up in an Afghan household, we were eating Afghan foods. We were speaking the language. We were celebrating all the same holidays. and, And the culture was the same. So we had all of the pieces of the puzzle, but we just weren't in that country. And, of course, a lot was happening in Afghanistan, so we were safe from what um, others were having to live through in terms of the years of war and the amount of devastation and changes that were happening um, with with the government. But I grew up with this connection not having been there. I really wanted to go there. And it was after 9-11 and after the Taliban were ousted that Afghanistan became a place that people could safely travel to again. And so that's when my parents and I, we made a trip um, back to Afghanistan. My parents had not been back there since they had left. So it was a little bit of a bittersweet trip for them because they got to see how much the country had changed in their absence. Um, But we also saw a lot of of hopeful reconstruction and rebuilding and and a lot of energy, especially on the part of young people. Mm -hmm. And so did you get to see where they grew grew up when you went? Uh, I did. So we went to the house that my father had grown up in, at least for part of his childhood. Um, we were able to see one of the homes my mother grew up in when she was a child, and another home had been absolutely just reduced to rubble, and all we could find was a, a corner of a banister um, of a staircase. So so we, we saw a lot of different things. What One particular moment that I found really interesting, it was it really touched me, is that I, I went to one of my mother's family homes, and down on the lower level of the home, they had this big old trunk. Mm. We opened the trunk, and there were just piles of photographs and and letters and and some books and the kinds of things that a family keeps. And there I found, I think it was like my second grade photograph, my school photo that my parents had been, you know, corresponding with their families over letters and sending photographs back and forth. And and here it was, you know, maintained in this big trunk of... of, um, collections of family keepsakes. Oh, that's great. Um, So now, in addition to um, writing adult books, you also write children's books, and you're a pediatrician. 
I am. And so writing children's books um, should have been the natural. Uh, a lot of people actually ask me when I tell them that I write books, the first thing they ask me is, well, so you must write children's books if they know that I'm a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of funny that I, I didn't start with the writing the children's books. I wrote, started writing adult books. But it, it has made a lot of sense for me to start writing for children since that is, um, that's really my background is, is talking to children, making sure that we address the needs of children, understanding that the, the children are engaged and very much a part of what's happening in our world. Mm-hmm. So with that medical background, what made you turn to writing adult books in the first place? Well, I give my husband a lot of credit there. He saw that I always had my nose in a book and I was sort of obsessed with you know stories and, and, and the idea that fiction um, could teach us, could help us explore the world around us. And, and he had a belief that he's like, I bet you can do this too. And I think sometimes you just need someone to give you that little nudge and, and what happened after that was I said, you know what, I'm going to try it and I'm going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, sort of hey, this liberating good. time because I had no expectations and I could just, you know, start plugging away at the keyboard and, you know, what came of it, good. If it didn't, if nothing came out of it, then I, I wouldn't have to tell anyone what I'd been trying to do. <laughs> <clears throat> well, hey, it's a good, good thing he did. Yeah, I'm glad he did. It's been an incredibly rewarding experience. I've been able to meet so many people, talk with so many individuals all around the world, and it's been really powerful to see how much a fictional story can connect us, can teach us, can inspire us, and uh, and I'm, I've been really moved with the response from readers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so are people in Afghanistan reading your books? Are you getting any feedback from anyone over there? Some are. So... Um, I, I've had family members who were living in Afghanistan who started picking up the book, and then after that, I've actually been contacted by someone who runs a bookshop in Kabul, and he said that he was looking forward to getting my next book in there because he had been selling my, my book to readers uh, from the first book that I published, and he's selling them in English. Um, so there are people who are you know, living in Afghanistan who are reading the stories, and overall, I'd say that the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, which is really great for me to hear. That's great. Um, so obviously, going into this book, um, you have the Afghan culture that you grew up with as you know, sort of a foundation for it. Um, what other research did you have to do um, in writing this book? You know, for, for when I write my stories, I do feel a responsibility to give people really good information because I understand that I'm introducing not just a culture, but I'm also introducing a history to a country that's had a very complicated history. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm giving the right kind of information. So I, I do my best to use textbooks, to use um, articles, news articles, um, the work of anthropologists and sociologists to document exactly you know, what we believe happened changing from one regime to another and the way the politics influenced uh, the, the everyday lives of the people. So when I write about a king who had a harem um, at the turn of the century, or um, the talk about the first lady of Afghanistan who was, you know, ripped off her headscarf and declared that it's not mandatory that women should wear it. I try to pull in the the, the real information for what exactly happened there and, and do justice to the turn of, uh, of the social world in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a bit, because um, m- much of the book takes place in a women's prison, um, and there was a Human Rights Watch report that you um, looked into pretty thoroughly in writing the book. Exactly. And so for this House Without Windows, then, 
I used this Human Rights Watch report because it, um, it's a very detailed report that's actually available online to anyone. Um, the, the lawyer who went and did the research firsthand has been a very generous um, resource for me because she's, we've spoken on the phone, we've corresponded over email, she's, she read my manuscript before uh, it became a finished product, and she's someone who has walked into these prisons, interviewed women, and, and kind of picked apart the legal system to see where the deficiencies are and what kinds of cases end up there. And so when she interviewed all these women, I did not use any specific case of hers, but I tried to pull the kinds of situations she was finding and the kinds of trouble she was finding to create a very realistic representation of, uh, of the prison down to the layout and the kinds of materials used to build those facilities. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about the book um, is all these strong, dynamic female characters in the book, particularly, um, I'm probably not going to say it right, but um, Golna, Ziba, Ziba's mother. Yeah, Golnaz is a, she's become a favorite. Mm, yeah, no, so um, I, I could have read an entire book just about her. <laughs> uh, she's, she's, you know, every, every once in a while you come up with, like, one of these just favorite characters, and I think Golnaz has become one of those. Um, she's someone who is, uh, she's the mother of the woman who is sent to prison, accused of murdering her husband, and so Golnaz is on the sidelines uh, interacting with her daughter. They have a bit of a strange a, a relationship that she's, fighting to overcome. She has these beautiful, bewitching green eyes, which in the Afghan culture, you know, green eyes are definitely a thing of beauty, and they can be enchanting, but there's also this sort of superstitious belief that anyone who has those green eyes, they're very capable of casting the evil eye on you. So if you were to have uh, dinner at the home of someone who has green eyes, and she looks over and says, oh, what a beautiful dress you're wearing that you know that within minutes you will spill some tomato sauce on your, <laughs> on your dress and it'll, it'll be ruined and you'll know exactly why. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of that mixed feeling about the green eyes. And so Golnaz is a woman who has taken that impression that people have of her and instead of being trampled down by it or feeling stigmatized by it, she's decided to make that her power. And so she starts learning all these tricks of, of how to, to perform black magic. And that becomes her big skill, her, big, her thing that garners her the most respect within the community as well. Respect and, and fear a bit. And fear, yes. Yeah, it's a little bit, I guess, a mafia flavor of what she's got going on there. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. No, she was she was fascinating. Um, another really interesting part of the book was um, the lawyer Yusuf, who uh, was born in Afghanistan, moves to the states, and then decides to go back over um, to use his American education to try to improve the system. Um, and so throughout the book, there's this struggle where he's trying to battle um, both this very fledgling criminal justice system that's you know trying to be modern, but these un- also these unspoken societal codes. Is that? sort of representative of what's going on over there right now? Yeah, I think, you know, Afghanistan is in a state of evolution right now. So it is being introduced to different ways of doing things by other countries, by the Western world. Um, But it also has to reconcile that with what makes sense to Afghanistan itself. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan had a system for doing things, um, and one that was fairly functional pre-war. So we're talking, you know, pre-1979. And so right now they're trying to find 
the right combination of how we move forward, how they're able to advance the the, the organization of the country um, in a way that does not uh, go against the flow of culture that makes sense to the people that are working there. And so that, that evolution, when people are leaving the Western world to go back into Afghanistan, someone like Yusuf, for example, who believes he, he knows the way of the country because he's from there, he lived there. And yet when he's going back, he's finding that he's struggling with exactly what he can use, which of his tools will, will work in that particular situation. I think that's what a lot of people are finding. And that's why a lot of imported solutions to Afghan problems uh, are not working. Mm-hmm. Because what people need is a solution that is um, inherent to the country itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems like, um, just from you know my impression reading the book, um, it seems like a lot of, there are you know, many aspects of Afghan culture that are ultimately rooted in the oppression of women. Is that, finding a balance there, is that key to moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, we as a, a larger society know that when you give your women equal footing and give them a, a respected place in society and you understand that every female citizen of your country should have equal value, um, then that's when you're in the best position to make your country successful. That's the best platform that you can have. And uh, I don't think that's, you know, wishful thinking. I think that there's actual, those are it's almost scientific knowledge to, to base that upon. So Afghanistan's working in that direction. You know, they're coming out from under not just the Taliban regime, but also a very conservative um, response to the, in, the introduction of a communist movement. So there were many different conflicting views of the role of women in society. Under the Taliban, of course, it was at its, uh, you know, women who lived through that call it the darkest days for women in Afghanistan, where they could not even wear nail polish for fear of having their nails, if they were caught, to have their nails removed, their fingernails removed. Mm-hmm. So to come out from under that kind of a darkness and that kind of an oppressive system, it's amazing to me to see what women have been able to accomplish. Um, women are in all roles of society. They are serving as uh, attorney generals. They are in the parliament. They are vocal. They are performers and they are pop stars. They are, um, you know, pilots. So they're doing all different kinds of things. That being said, there's a huge amount of backlash. Mm-hmm. And that being said, there's also a lot of room for growth still because there's a lot of um, of the old misogyny and patriarchy that's still present there. But, you know, we just had the World Robotics Competition for and the, the Afghan girls team. They were denied visas two times. They had crossed Afghanistan to make it to Kabul twice to apply for visas. They were denied two times. And then kind of in the 11th hour, they had their visas approved, and they were one of only, I think, six teams that were all female. Mm-hmm. They made it to the United States, and they competed um, and they did win a silver award for courage, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because of what they endured to, to get here. But that's an all-female robotics team, and, uh, and they're here, and they're, you know, despite the odds, they are showing that they are going to be part of the innovativeness of the country and part of the, the future of that country. That's fantastic. Um, and it seems like in the book it ultimately comes down to the judge at the end who very much he wants this to be his big break, he wants to make history with this case, but at the same time he's so reluctant to let go of the past. 
Yeah, you know, the judge is it's a really conflicted person, and I think that's what uh, Afghanistan, being in a point of transition in history between the past and the present, I mean, we're all at that point, but Afghanistan is so obviously at that point because mm-hmm. of the changes of, of power. And so this man is there struggling, right? He knows what he wants the country to look like, and there's part of him that wants to see that happen. Then there's part of him that thinks, my God, is that even a possibility, and how crazy is that? that we could move in that that far from where we've been. And, and so he really struggles with how he can fit into that, that moving process and, and what direction he wants the country to go in. And so, yeah, he's, he's caught looking at, at someone like Golnaz and wondering, you know, what kind of influence she's got over him. He's looking at Yusuf and saying, well, is this guy right? Is this the kind of direction we should be moving towards, a, a, a legal system that is so precise and... and um, and similar to the Western world, or is there something to be said for the way that we have been doing things here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very it's all very interesting. Um, so, Nadi, we have one more question for you. Um, and this is a question we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Since this podcast is primarily for teachers, educators, their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's a tough question because I've actually had a lot of teachers, um, and I've been so lucky that I've been able to go home. I have two different hometowns since I moved when I was in seventh grade, and at both my hometowns I've gone back and done book events at libraries, and uh, it's been really moving actually to see some of my childhood teachers come out to those events. So being able to be back in touch with my French teacher, with um, the music teacher, it's been Mm. really incredible. Uh, so it's hard for me to pin down one, but I, I would say that, you know, we did have one teacher who um, was a Spanish teacher. I didn't even take Spanish, but he served as an after-school um, advisor to a, a program that we created, a club we created uh, around social issues and kind of educating our peers around social issues that we found important, like violence in relationships and um, the Holocaust and, and uh uh, discrimination against people. So I think learning from that teacher who supported us in trying to create a new program and do something that hadn't been done before in our school um, mm-hmm. was really important for me because I felt empowered. I felt like I could do something big, and I saw it through with a supervision, and we were able to not just do it for ourselves but to do it for the entire school. And so this was a person who was not even really my teacher, but served as an after-school advisor after the, uh, outside of his duties teaching Spanish. So that's one teacher, but I would have to say that's one of, of so many because mm-hmm. I really have amazing experiences um, from so many of my teachers. Just Even sometimes it's just one particular moment where they said something that really stayed with me. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, well, Nadia, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.